You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Shawley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, thanks loads of you got in touch uh, yesterday uh, about the new format for the podcast, where we're going to bring you some Times columnists picking apart the news before we bring you the big thing. On Tuesdays, uh, the Times columnists are Finkelvich, as literally everyone is calling them, Danny Finkelstein and David Iwanovich, podcast favourites, if you like, Times columnists uh, who you uh, already know and love. So they'll be up in a sec uh, talking about what is going on uh, in politics, both here and in America, in just a moment. Uh, but the big thing today is I've been talking to the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, about a whole load of things, plans for a, a Holocaust memorial to be built next to the Houses of Parliament, his concern that social media companies aren't doing enough to tackle uh, hate and anti-Semitism online and uh, that extraordinary intervention he made in the general election campaign uh, in December when he wrote in the Times of his concern that Jeremy Corbyn was unfit for high office uh, because of his failure to tackle anti-Semitism. So that's coming up uh, in a big thing in the podcast. But like I said, it's Tuesday, so we kick off with Finkelvich. Daniel Finkelstein, good morning. Good morning. And David Ivanovich. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Are you both well? Yes, I am certainly. <laughs> I can't speak for David. <laughs> you'd never, you'd never <laughs> risk speaking for David. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, 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 my key word is it one word or two? Well, it's cold it. chain. <laughs> it's what? Say that again. Cold chain. Co- no, cold chain. Cold chain. Is this because is this a vaccine thing? Is this a vaccine thing? Yes. 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 It's a vaccine thing. We've all got to learn the expression cold chain. And this is basically because it needs to be kept phenomenally cold. It does. Uh, this particular one, appear, apparently it seems that it, it does. But I've now heard it about four or five times in the last, what, two or three months. I've never heard it before, and I really like it. Um, I was reading something, they made it sound very complicated. It has to be packed with dry ice uh, in, uh, to keep it very cold. But I once had a summer job at an ice, at a ice cream factory, and we used to put ice cream in the post to people, uh, packed with packets of dry ice. It was very straightforward. We just did it in the in the factory. So... Anyway, so if, if 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 Pfizer are listening and they want some top tips, you know, maybe you could get sent your vaccine and some ice cream at the same time. Anyway, that's that, that's not what that's not what you wanted to talk about. Um, I, the first thing I want to talk to you about is uh, because sometimes you know we can learn lessons from history. Today is the 40th anniversary of Michael Foote becoming Labour leader. Are you are you celebrating, marking it today, David? Um, this, you know, this is a this is a real classic Finkelstein attempt to draw me 
as a kind of left of centre person into his kind of endless preoccupations with obscure politicians of the past um, and his kind of, his kind of collective. I, I, I absolutely see what he's doing. He wants me to kind of go on about how, given that I was just, I was president of the National Union of Students at the time, uh, had been elected earlier that year, and he wants me to tell you about how I sent a letter to Michael Foote congratulating him on his election as Labour leader and saying how it marked a kind of new dawn blah, 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 and how it turned out that I was utterly wrong about everything. That's what he wants you to get me to say, and I've said it. <laughs> My goodness. My word of the year is projection. I, I mean, <laughs> none of those thoughts had occurred to me in the slightest. It's amazing. Um, but it, it, although although uh, I'm quite glad for lockdown, because it means I could celebrate Michael Foote's 40th anniversary quietly at home. It, it, was, <laughs> it, it, was, a, it was, of course, a very important political event because uh, his, his accession to the leadership, just because... Um, you know, it was the sort of first experiment of the Labour Party that went further later with that kind of politics of the of the left. But Michael Foote was a very different character to Jeremy Corbyn. And I think, interestingly, lots of people who supported Jeremy Corbyn didn't perceive that difference. And the difference was really in their view of parliamentary democracy. Je Jeremy Corbyn was much more of a direct Democrat of the kind of new left type and Michael Foote much more of the parliamentary Democrat. And uh, in that shift from one to the other, um, there, there was, you know, a whole range of stories could could fit. Uh, and there's been also... Dan is, Dan is absolutely right. One of the key, and, and you measure one of the key measurements that allows you to to show this is what happened over the Falklands War when Argentina invaded the Falklands. Uh, Michael Foote's immediate uh, uh, response was to support uh, the government in the action that it took to regain the Falkland Islands over the on the grounds of sovereignty and the popular choice of the islanders. Now, I put it to listeners that were the same situation to have been repeated during the Corbyn uh, leadership of Labour, it is extraordinarily unlikely that he would have said yes. that uh, thing. He actually almost certainly would have tried to find a way of saying we should yes. negotiate this in such a way that maybe the Falklands go back to Argentina. He would have, he would have, he would have suggested we send a penguin to General Galtieri to check whether it was his. <laughs> Now, I had, I had um, uh, I sort of, well, I don't know why I bother sometimes because I only end up upsetting Corbynistas, but I suggested on uh, social media yesterday that um, uh, Trumpism, everyone's saying always change politics or whatever, it is, is it possible that Trumpism just sort of goes away? And in the same way that Corbyn, you know, Corbyn supposedly nearly won a general election, changed politics forever, overhauled the Labour Party uh, forevermore, and now he's sort of sitting in his shed on his allotment wondering why more people aren't signing his petition. Is it possible the same thing happens with, with Trumpism? Uh I, 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 I don't think they're quite I don't think they're quite analogous in the sense that um, Trump has absolutely unique characteristics. Uh, he is for bad, I would say, but a remarkable uh, public personality. And Corbyn just wasn't. Corbyn isn't a remarkable public person. He's an unremarkable, un relatively unpublic personality. And I'm not saying that just to be cruel. I'm saying because he was actually essentially, and I've always looked at it this way, a kind of scarecrow that people put their own clothes on, then looked at and said, yes, that's what I want. Uh, Trump has never been uh, anything like that. So whereas uh, Corbynism actually probably was a a kind of a thing. In other words, it represented a kind of view amongst probably many uh, particularly younger voters of a big change in society. Trump has never been a thing ideologically in himself. Um, he, he, he represents to me something completely different and I'm still puzzling over.
Uh, well, that might be. Um, one other thing that um, leapt out, I think it was you shared something, Danny, this week about uh, Twitter. Obviously, we know that um, Donald Trump is a big tweeter, uh, as was Jeremy Corbyn, and, you know, got very excited about um, the reaction that he provoked on social media. But uh, a Biden campaign aide had been saying that actually they turned off Twitter. They realised, yeah. uh, shock horror, that most Americans are not on Twitter, and therefore building your whole campaign around it was probably the wrong thing to do. Absolutely. Look, it isn't actually just Twitter. Uh, lots of, you know, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb always says that, you know, you can't follow business by watching business television and he always turns it off. And I think he's right. You do miss long term trends the more you follow short term ones. Um, and, um, you know, it's the wood for the trees, you know, in that old cliche. So, uh, I, but Twitter, I think, is made that problem sharper for two reasons. One is it's more immediate, uh, so people are responding to things that really do go away within an hour or two. Uh, You think of that ridiculous incident with whether somebody did or didn't punch, I think it was Matthew Hancock's aide, you know, and did Laura Kunzberg cover that for the BBC and, you know, that sort of thing which was a story that was gone literally within two or three hours, but but on Twitter it was a thing, and people even still bring it up now. Um, and then the other reason is just because Twitter does trend left, so you get a distorted view. If you, if you One of the things that I do sometimes is I type literally a random word, light projection or whatever we were discussing, into uh, Twitter just to see who's talking about it, because it gives you an idea of just how much of Twitter, even of Twitter, which is very political, isn't political uh, and people there are not talking about it and I think you just get a distorted view when you narrow yourself down to a few um, you know articulate people even if you take trouble to take to do that from both sides you know I follow Owen Jones of, of the Guardian and yeah, I do I've that in order to learn that. what he's saying <laughs> but the reason is but but even in doing that what you're not following is all the people who just say nothing about politics at all yeah but that's the, sort of the risk I, I keep trying to cull people I follow and unfortunately Owen Jones is one of them um, but as a result, yeah, you, you, it's not a really, uh, it's not a real. Although he keeps getting in touch with me, it's always lovely to hear from him. Um, uh, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not a reflection of Britain. Is I think David Cameron said about five years ago, David. Uh, it, I, I think um, it's not just Twitter, by the way. I mean, uh, over the course of the American election, over the course from Tuesday on. Um, the kind of incredible short-term thinking which overtakes almost everybody in the public arena, particularly commentators, when it comes to, let's get a result, we've got to have a result now, it's got to kind of come out now, this is what it means, this is what it means. When they don't know and they don't leave any time and you can't... I mean, I was really struck by one young journalist saying completely correctly, he said, the thing about this election is not that it's close, it's that it's slow. Uh, and that seemed to me a really good observation um, uh, that, that, that he made. But we're just not used to any kind of slowness. So one of the things you're pointing out is the incredible speed with which everything has to happen or with which it disappears um, and the excitement that it causes and then it kind of goes away. And, and that's a very good way for the reason for coming off social media or something like Twitter, which promises absolute instant responses to absolutely everything. It gets incredibly impatient, if nothing. I, I lost count of the number of people saying, oh, why can't they just hurry up, etc.? As if an election was kind of conducted as an entertainment campaign for people on British social media. It was preposterous. And these were intelligent people. And you felt like telling them, you know, just kind of cool it a bit. It makes a lot of sense to turn that off for a while, except for very specific news sources or sources or links to to very kind of useful sources of information and to leave it alone and to see the big picture. You just need to look at the Times, Times Radio and Times Columnist and that's really all you need on social media. (laughs)
exactly. By the way, Danny, is the word is the random word you type into Twitter? Is it Finkelstein? <laughs> <laughs> no, that really wouldn't work. Was I'd get loads and loads about Norman Finkelstein and Palestine, and loads and loads about me that I really <laughs> don't want true. to see. Because I, <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to say, don't do that. I want to talk to you about leaks as well. Um, there's been this uh, sort of hilarious ongoing story. I mean, if you could turn your minds back all of about 10 days, um, when uh, our colleague, in fact, Steve Swinford, got hold of the news that Boris Johnson was planning a second lockdown, uh, typed it up on a Friday night. It was on the front pages on Saturday, forcing Boris Johnson to come dangerously close to interfering with Strictly Come Dancing to announce the lockdown. Uh, there's, a, there's a leak inquiry. There's the talk of someone being a chatty rat in the cabinet. Michael Gove and Matt Hancock having their phones looked at. Um, have you ever been subject of a, of a leak inquiry, Danny? Yes. Have I've, you? Not only that, but I've been sort of, sort, yes, I've been sort of responsible for it as well. So what happened with me was that the, the FT ran across the front <laughs> of its page that John Major had called an election summit. And the reason they had that story was because a friend of mine had rung my home spoken to my wife, who'd said, oh, he's not in, he's gone to work. And it was a Sunday. And then the FT worked out there must have been an election summit. And there was like a big inquiry into where, into the leak of it. And I, of course, denied it, because at the time I thought it had nothing to do with me. And later I worked out it was actually me, probably, that was responsible for that story. And I think a lot of stories are a bit like that. J j having been, by the way, on the, on the side of receiving leaks as working for the leader of the opposition, quite a lot of leaks are... Um, there are a lot of things that people tell to their special advisors who tell to a friend and then you get them that way and then you get go back and check them. Sometimes they're said deliberately. Often they're just chatty people. Sometimes people do actually literally leave things on photocopies. That used to happen a lot more than it does now for obvious reasons in the Commons. And people used to share photocopiers and people would often leave documents on them. So... There are lots of reasons why what looks like it's a sort of deliberate briefing is just because someone asked the question and someone else was just a little bit too chatty and answering. And sometimes it's a bit like when I was at work, when I should have been at home. People are kind of, it's like the, uh, the that's a Sherlock Holmes one, isn't it, about the dog that didn't bark in the night. I remember actually once, I think I'm, I'm not yeah. sure if I've told this, maybe I've told you this story before, uh, writing a story about uh, a cabinet minister and something that they wanted to do. And uh, their special advisor phoning me up and saying, there's no way that you, where you've got this story from. You haven't spoken to the minister. Uh, where did you get this story from? And I said, I got it from you. You told me at the Christmas drinks last week. <laughs> and they thought, oh, well, that was completely different. Maybe it's off the record or something. They'd sort of, they'd sort of half forgotten that they'd, uh, they'd, they'd blurted it out. And so they, were sort of, they ended up basically demanding a, a leak inquiry into themselves. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 That's very I, typical. I, I, was, I was quite a good friend of the... Of the of the late uh, BBC political editor John Cole, and um, John had his sources, and he would say a minister told me, and etc. And it was always Douglas Hurd, because uh, he was great friends with Douglas Hurd. And after a while, as with other journalists, you begin to realise who's talking to you. So, for instance, there are some people you know who are complete mouthpieces for David Davis, because David Davis has a particular way of talking about people and so on. And you could know what David Davis thought because you discovered a cabinet minister had said or or, or whatever. Those aren't exactly leaks, really, but um, they're relationships that are very productive later of leaks, aren't they? Because you get the politician gets into a kind of uh, comfort zone with a particular journalist and wants things to come out his or her own way and, and uses it that. But then there's the other kind of thing, which is more appropriate to the way which we began this sequence, which is when an entire government operation, a big kind of a major policy thing, drops 
with selective journalists sometime before something. And that's what gets everybody very suspicious, even if occasionally there's no need for it to. Uh, just finally, before I um, before I let you go, I've, we've got the interview with the chief rabbi uh, coming up to start to eleven o'clock, and we we obviously talked to him about the, the sad death of Jonathan Sachs at the weekend. But you knew him as well, Danny. I did, yes, and and I miss him a lot. Um, I don't know, I don't know whether David encountered him, but you know, one of the things about him, I really often I did. didn't agree I did. with him because I'm a liberal, uh, you know, I'm a liberal Jew, and he's an Orthodox Jew. Um, but we always had such a civilised discourse and I always had such respect for him. There were lots of things he said I thought were profound. And actually, uh, his book on morality, I do recommend to people last night. It's not a writing everything. There are lots of questions to ask, but it is a really, really interesting book about our own responsibility beyond the state, beyond politics, beyond other people and the economy, our own responsibility for society and its morality. What about you, David? Yeah, he was a lovely man with a, with a really wonderful voice. I mean, if you, you know, I would kill for a voice as mellifluous uh, as he had. And he'd invite yeah. you round to dinner and he wouldn't let you go with at least, without at least one or two copies of his latest book, which given that he was always writing books, ended up being quite a lot of Jonathan Sachs <laughs> books, which I have in kind of various places, <laughs> and which I must at some point get round to, get round to reading. <laughs> I have to say, it was a joy. It was a joy to be at dinner with him. Um, and if he having was, to read yeah. his books was the price you had to pay for that, it was a price worth paying. <laughs> well, that's I it. thought they were good. That, I, ended up, I ended up with the same thought, but, you know, his books, actually, they're very good. I mean, he's got a very good writing style and, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're profound. And he's just thinking, he's not, he's thinking about political things from a non-politician. It's very interesting. Well, there we are. It turns out Danny has read them and David hasn't. Um, we'll <laughs> we'll ju judge what that means. As ever. As ever. <laughs> that was David Aronovich and Danny Finkelstein. Finkelvich, as I'm sure you're already uh, calling them. Uh, up next, I speak to the Chief Rabbi, Ephraim Mervis. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast. Now, the main event on uh, today's episode, uh, in fact, it's amazing. On this day in 1938, uh, Jews in Germany were waking up to the aftermath of uh, Kristallnacht. Actually, it lasted several days. Um, where uh, stormtroopers and German uh, citizens basically rioted against uh, Jews living in Germany. And we know what happened uh, subsequently. Um, I've been talking to the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, about 
why he thinks there should be a Holocaust memorial right next to Parliament, 80 years on after those those appalling, appalling events. We also talk about how Jewish orthodoxy uh, can fit in uh, modern Britain. Uh, but I began by talking to him about the sad news of the death of his predecessor at the weekend, Jonathan Sachs, Lord Sachs. And I began by asking what he made of the extraordinary outpouring of tributes led by Prince Charles. You know, I, I said in the eulogy that I gave at his funeral that the most suitable verse from the Bible to quote comes from Genesis, a prince of God in our midst. That's what the Canaanites said to Abraham, our patriarch. And that's exactly what Rabbi Lord Sachs was, a prince of God in our midst. And in the same way as with regard to Abraham, that was a statement made not by those of his faith, but those of the broad area he was living in, so too with Rabbi Sachs. He has made a most remarkable, extraordinary global impact. And yes, the outpouring of pain, a deep sense of loss further to his passing has been immense and testament to a, a truly giant of a man. And uh, a man who um, transcended in a way, merely, I would say merely being the chief rabbi, I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but a, a, a public figure who went well beyond that. Yes, absolutely. He certainly touched hearts. He molded minds. Um, you know, uh, there are when it comes to leadership, there are many adjectives that can be used for a great leader. But for me, the most important adjective is inspirational. Uh, and that's exactly what he was. Because when you're brilliant, when you give information, all right, people listen, they take on board. But when you're inspirational, that provides life-shaping opportunities. And that's what he did for many, many people. And that's why he's so very deeply missed. Of course, there's never a good time uh, to lose someone. But th this is a particularly tough time right now. You weren't able to attend his funeral, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Because my NHS app uh, told me a number of days ago that I have to self-isolate. I have no clue whatsoever who I was near to. It, it doesn't make much sense, but it's very important that we should all abide by COVID-related regulations. And that's exactly what I'm doing, which made it exceptionally difficult for me not being able to be there at the funeral of my illustrious predecessor. But I sent my eulogy for a, a colleague of mine who read it at the event. Which, which you know, the lots, lots of people, are sadly, have had that experience over the last um, few months. I wonder, given the many reflections on his life, where you see uh, Judaism in Britain today, I think Jonathan Sachs arguably um, struggled sometimes to align Jewish orthodoxy with, with you know, social liberalism, modern mores of the 21st century. How, how do you see that, that balance today? I think that all faiths have numerous challenges uh, within our modern world. Thank God, in the midst of significant challenges, we're doing very well. Um, we have added strength within our communities, within our synagogues, within our educational system. Um, and um, during these very challenging COVID times, we've seen our communities redefine themselves uh, to move away from buildings to people, uh, to an emphasis on spirituality. Uh, on connectedness, and it's all been exceptionally impressive, and, and I'm proud of the way in which our community has handled COVID, and uh, how, despite the enormous challenges, uh, we're doing exceptionally well. 
has the experience, like you said, you know, the moving away with synagogues, like all places of worship, shut for large parts of the of the lockdown. Has it changed your faith and the way that um, you you view it, the way you experience it? But like you said, it's not about buildings. Well, fascinatingly, many academic studies and pieces of research globally have indicated that through COVID, there's been an increase in spirituality. Many more people uh, are praying, albeit not all within established settings. And I'm certainly finding that uh, within our communities and beyond. Uh, And I think that COVID has presented all of us with an opportunity to take one step back to reevaluate our lives, our priorities. Um, and in the midst of these very dark clouds, let's hope that this will be one of the significant silver linings so that we can emerge from this very sad period into a period through which we will have benefited from our experiences and learned how to cope better with challenging times. And we can also apply some of the lessons we're learning now to our communities in the future. So for example, digital communication, whole worlds have been opened to us and uh, we need to continue that uh, well into the future. And as as part of that, the sort of the modernisation of of, uh, faith, if you like, do you think that uh, the sort of new modern orthodoxy, if you like, does that does that need to have full equality for women? So women's issues are a a challenge within all faith groups today. Um, It is exceptionally important that uh, every single person should count and should be important within our communities, should be able to find their expression in a way that is satisfactory for them. Uh, And for us, we strive within the boundaries of Jewish law and tradition to enable women to find uh, as great an expression as possible. Uh, Within my chief rabbinate, I'm now into my eighth year, we have made significant strides Uh, to improve opportunities uh, for women. Uh, There will be some who uh, unfortunately might not be as satisfied as we might have hoped they they would be with where we are at, but we've certainly come a a long way and and I'm very proud of that. When would you imagine there might be full equality for women? Well, I believe there is full equality now because it all depends on on the term that one is using. Um, You know, Different people are different, and and there are different roles and different ways of expressing ourselves. Um, For many centuries, there has been inequality in Judaism because women have been more significant than men because Jewish status uh, is determined according to uh, the matriarchal line. Um, So uh, if one's mother is Jewish but one's father is not, we define that person as being Jewish, giving giving women... uh, a very significant role uh, within our faith, because women uh, in our tradition set a tone, are the prime educators, uh, our inspiration flows uh, readily from them. In my own life, the women of my life have been the prime influence over me. So, you know, it's, uh, if you're talking about equal opportunities within a synagogue service, that doesn't exist. But equality in terms of opportunities through various channels and in different ways, uh, there are areas in which uh, women have the upper hand over men. 
Uh, now, the, the reason you've actually come on today uh, very kindly is because you're the latest uh, person to give evidence to the public inquiry into the Holocaust Memorial plant in Westminster. Uh, as the, the chief rabbi, explain to us why you think it's so important that we have that memorial in such a prominent spot. Well, the, the more memorial and the prominent, prominent spot actually go together because being juxtaposed to the Houses of Parliament is part of the key narrative that the memorial and the learning centre will be able to provide for us. But um, Matt, if I could just go one step back uh, in terms of providing setting, there was a very significant occasion on the 27th of January 2014 when David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, uh, launched what was uh, then the Holocaust Commission. And uh, I was deeply honoured that he asked me to be a member of the original commission. And the launch meeting took place in the Cabinet Room in 10 Downing Street. And um, David Cameron set uh, before us what his plans were, what this was all about. Sir Mick Davis, who was to chair it, uh, spoke and uh, there was a, a conversation, a discussion, and then right at the end, um, before going outside to publicly announce what we had decided, uh, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, turned to me and he said, Chief Rabbi, just before we conclude, um, will you share with us some parting reflections? I was put on the spot, <laughs> and what came out was something which, by nature, was literally from the heart. I said, this is a sacred task because everything about it is sacred by nature. We're speaking about our responsibility to survivors. We're speaking about, um, you know, what I actually went on to say then in, in that particular setting was to quote from uh, the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, which speaks about the imperative we have to remember uh, all the evil that's been perpetrated against us. And our Torah says, you must remember, you must never forget. <laughs> so there are two different imperatives. But why do we need both? If you're remembering, you're not forgetting. You're not forgetting, it's because you're remembering. And the Talmud explains it as follows. You must remember, that means you must do something proactive to guarantee that you will remember in order that you shouldn't forget. And that's where this memorial comes into the picture. We have to do something proactive. We have to guarantee that the horrors of the past should never be forgotten. We're speaking here about horrors against 6 million Jewish men, women, and children, all innocent victims, together with all other victims of Nazi persecution. But this is not an exclusively Jewish story because it's actually all about contemporary Britain and the future Britain we will have. It's all about hate speech, hate crime, xenophobia, racism, an increase of which we are witnessing on a daily basis here in Britain and around the world. We need to educate people. We need to inspire people. This particular initiative is long, long overdue. Nearly every major capital city in the world has this type of memorial. Um, it's about time that Britain had one as well. And that's why it's been my privilege to be part of this narrative, part of the development of this initiative. And I'm really looking forward together with so many people in our community to the fulfilment of this aspiration. Just describe for people if they haven't seen the sort of artist's impressions and the plans of it, how it will look, because it's, it's planned for the garden right next, the, the, what's called sort of grassy area, right next to uh, the Houses of Parliament. Describe if you can how it will look. 
So if you're familiar with Victoria Tower Gardens, it's, a tri it's of a triangular shape. And then right at the end, the furthest point from the Houses of Parliament, um, you will have uh, 22 fins beautifully um, planned uh, and designed, uh, reaching upwards, not too tall. Um, so if you're sailing along the Thames, I'm not sure that you'll be able to see it from there. Um, why 22? Because there were 22 countries from which Jews were dragged out of their homes and sent to their deaths. And therefore, there will be 22 paths coming into this memorial, um, full of symbolism, charged with enormous meaning. Um, and 93% of this beautiful, lovely park will remain not only untouched, but actually enhanced as a result uh, of what we will be doing. Um, and uh, what will happen is that we'll benefit from the footfall of many, many hundreds of thousands of people who will be visiting the Houses of Parliament, and in particular school children. So crucially important that our school children in our country will be able to have this opportunity to be taught about these horrors in a very appropriate educational way so that they will remember this visit and hopefully in their lives ahead of them they'll apply the lessons. And any, anyone who's attended, like you said, visited any of the other mm. exhibitions around the world cannot not fail to be moved uh, by it. And, yeah, I suppose I, I can see your your point that it's sort of strange that, that London doesn't have that. Um, you mentioned the rise in hate crime, whether that's anti-Semitism or xenophobia or uh, homophobia, whatever it might be. Why, why do you think it is that at this point in the 21st century we have seen this rise in anti-Semitism? You know, <laughs> anti-Semitism is the world's oldest hatred. So many books have been written, so many doctoral theses have been written. Nobody has come up with the definitive cause and reason. Um, and even now, an increase of it, uh, it's mind-boggling. It's so sad. It's so depressing that within living memory of what transpired during the Second World War, that we can see neo-Nazism on the rise, we can see hate speech and hate crime. It doesn't appear that we have learned all the lessons that we should have learned in, in order to apply them to our lives. And, and that is why uh, having this memorial, this learning center, and in fact, I would say that the learning center is even more important than the memorial. It's studying, it's educating, so that people can be immersed in an appreciation of what has transpired uh, let me give you just one example. You know, um, right now it's a significant time of the year. The 9th of November, 1938, was called Kristallnacht, that, the night of broken glass. Hundreds and hundreds of synagogues throughout Europe were burnt to the ground. Um, it's the night of, of crystal because, broken crystal because the windows were smashed and that's the sound that could be heard by the neighbors and then the burning down of synagogues. Now that was a signal, it was a sign of terrible things which were to come. People didn't know how to interpret that development. We now know from the history of the 30s and the 40s what transpired. So we're well placed if we study that history well to now be able to pick up on signals and on signs and to say, wow, this is happening. This person speaking a certain way, this national leader has said whatever or has not acted in a particular way. Look what happened in the 30s as a result of something similar. We have to act now. So benefiting from the history of the past is crucial to us building um, 
a, a peaceful future. Um, and we shouldn't forget the fact that what happened in the 1930s in German, Germany happened within a cultural setting, a sophisticated society. It was a democratic setting that paved the way for it. And that's why the location of this memorial is so fitting. Can't think of a better place anywhere. It's wonderful because people will be prompted to ask, so in the building next door, what decisions did they take? What decisions didn't they take? How did Parliament react? And if the Parliament in Germany could have done that in the 1930s, what's our Parliament doing now? Our parliamentarians, uh, they uh, need to answer for everything they do. They're accountable to the nation. We can't leave them to their own devices. They must be under our constant scrutiny because they represent us and our future. So the lessons from the location are immense. I mean, obviously, I've, I've got to ask you, in the recent days, the issue of anti-Semitism has become political again with the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party following that, that Equality and Human Rights Commission report, which found Labour had breached the Equality Act three times in its handling of uh, anti-Semitism cases. I wonder how you felt uh, when that report came out. And uh, looking ahead, uh, on Keir Starmer, I wonder if you, um, I don't know, judge him, mistrust him for having served in Jeremy Corbyn's team for so long? I had two very deep-rooted feelings when the EHRC report came out. The first was, as I issued it, as I said in my statement that I issued immediately after, it's feelings of deep sadness, sadness that a party right at the centre of government in this country for a century could have reached such a low point. Sadness, not just about what happened, but what was allowed to happen. Um, that it was necessary for the HRC to launch its investigation and for it to come up with the results that it came up with. My second deep-rooted uh, sentiment was one in which I felt good that everything we as a community had been saying um, and standing up for was now substantiated. Um, you know, we knew all the time what we were doing was justified um, and uh, we were right to defend ourselves. But more than that, all the time we were saying, this is not just about Jewish people, it's about our whole country, our future. Um, and we were absolutely correct in the stance that we took uh, and in the intervention that I personally took in November of last year leading up to the election. EHRC has uh, totally supported our actions and our deeds. So that's as far as uh, what I felt was concerned. Um, with regard to the Labour Party as it is today, we welcome enormously uh, the statements of Sir Keir Starmer and his team, their undertakings to implement the recommendations of EHRC in their fullest extent. We look forward to this actually happening. It's not going to be easy for them, but we certainly welcome the uh, enthusiasm that they're showing uh, and all their oral undertakings. Um, and... Uh, as Sir Keir Starmer has readily acknowledged publicly time and again, he knows that what we're waiting for is not talking, it is action. And he has started uh, in terms of that action, and uh, we appreciate it. One of the things that I found reporting on this and occasionally just being uh, furious about the, the state of uh, the Labour Party and, and anti-Semitism was that the, 
just the toxic nature of social media uh, and the reaction to it. I wonder, given what you were saying about, you know, society has to take action when it sees wrong things happening. Would you like to see social media companies do more to tackle the spread of anti-Semitism online? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been on the record in public with statements in this regard. It is crucially important for social media companies to be regulated uh, for them to take on greater responsibility uh, in this regard uh, and for us to guarantee that they are responsible uh, for what they are hosting uh, and, and what is uh, coming out from their platforms. And uh, first of all, social media is something wonderful in many respects. It, it uh, has been and continues to be a blessing for our societies in so many respects. Uh, together with that, uh, it has the potential, as it is proving to be, uh, to present a very negative element within our societies. And it does this at quite a number of levels. I appeared before the um, Home Affairs Select Committee, their hearings on anti-Semitism three years ago. And what I said there was that um, 20 years ago, when uh, Mr. Smith in his kitchen in Nottingham uh, said something awful to Mrs. Smith. Well, it was just the two of them who heard and that was it. Well, now when the same person, I don't know why I chose Smith, no, no offense, please, <laughs> to, to anybody. No, I know the point you're making. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but now when the same person says the same thing, but he just circulates it through social media and 150 people read it, and then they in turn, you know, press a button and, and many hundreds more read it, and I'm reading it now in my kitchen, and it's about me, well, gosh, I feel something. You know, I'm human. And therefore, the impact on the victims of what is being spread on social media is enormous. It's for that reason as well that I've gone out of my way to highlight the effects of social media on mental health, and particularly teenagers. Um, you know, when when I was growing up, being a teenager is difficult. It's tough. You're so self-conscious of what other people are thinking about you as, as you're developing. But to have certain comments now on social media about oneself and people take it seriously about their self-image, it can inflict an enormous amount of damage and harm to people. And we have to be so empathic in, in this regard. And, and for everybody, that, that's as far as the victims are concerned. But then the spread of the hate, it's rapid, it's quick. It goes from one side of the world to the other. Uh, and uh, certainly the companies need to be far more responsible. Um, just finally, you made a, it was a pretty extraordinary mm -hmm. uh, intervention in the election campaign last year saying that you thought that the very soul of our nation is at stake. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like we've stepped back from that, that had Jeremy Corbyn won the election, that that would have threatened the soul of the nation and, and his defeat, removal, and Keir Starmer now saying he'll tackle anti-Semitism? Does that, does that sort of take us back from the brink? I think EHRC has given you the answer. So uh, the answer is in the uh, Equalities and Human Rights Commission report on Labour, um, as it then was, what it was about, how it operated, the threat that it posed, and the added threat that it would have posed had it gone into government. I'm proud of the intervention that I made. Um, and I'm also proud of the British public in terms of um, how we saw how the British public has taken um, hatred seriously. 
and um, the, the amount of support that I personally got and our community received together now with the HRC report, together now with Labour's outright determination to rid the party of anti-Semitism, I think there are many very encouraging signs. And this brings us back to our Holocaust Memorial Foundation initiative alongside Parliament. That too, for me, is a very positive sign about where Britain is at, because our society recognizes the pain and suffering of one of its minorities and how this relates to the future of all of us as British citizens. And that's why it's so crucially important that that particular initiative should see the light of day. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.